Everybody, welcome back to Climate Transformed. We do a lot of interviews, as everyone is aware, and there are interviews where I'm very comfortable with the subject matter, and those interviews are always fine. There are other interviews where I'm a little over my skis, and they're the, they're the exciting ones for me because I get to learn. I get to learn a lot. And one of the areas where there is certainly a an underappreciated level of sophistication is in regards to recycling and in the conversation we're having today, specifically about tackling industrial plastic recycling. I couldn't be happier to have Tim Stedman and Jody Morgan here to discuss this with me and to, and to hold my hand as they walk us through an hour-long conversation about the complexities of the circular economy around industrial industrial plastics. I'm, I'm going to let them introduce themselves in, and spend a little time talking about the companies before we dive into a, into a deeper conversation. As per normal, I have, and certainly in this case, we'll have no monopoly over good questions. So there is a Q&A function at the bottom of the screen, which I'm going to get everyone to use. And I will get to those questions over the course of the next 55 minutes or so. Jody, I'm going to pick on you because you're top left as far as I can, as far as I can see. So do me a favor, tell us a little bit about Nexus Circular. Tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll dive into a, a broader conversation. Yes, of course. So Nexus Circular is part of the circular economy. So we're an advanced recycler for plastic, which means for us that we take polypropylene, polyethylene, and polystyrene, and we convert that back into a liquid that can be made into plastic again. And that can be done over and over again. So if you're not familiar with plastic, it starts with monomers. It's built up to this long chain and we just take it back down to the monomers. So think about like Legos. You have a Lego brick and people like Shell and Chevron Phillips, they bring that up into a tower, a Lego tower. We get that in the form of used plastic. We put it into a reactor, which has temperature in the absence of oxygen. So you're not burning it. And all that heat does, that energy does, is it just breaks it back down into the individual Lego bricks. That is in the form of a liquid. It looks like an olive oil or a vegetable oil. And our customers use that product as a feedstock and they convert that right back into plastic and it can go back out into the market and acts just like virgin. And that can be done over and over again. Nexus was founded in 2008. We've been commercial since 2018. We've been producing continuously since then for our offtake partners. We're now in the process of scaling the business. We did a fairly significant raise at the end of last year. And then the other announcements that we've made recently are new offtake partners, Lyondell, Bissell, and Brascom, in addition to an a additional offtake agreement from CPCHEM, who's been our partner for a long time. We believe that it's important not only for a business to do good, but also to do well in combination. We consider ourselves to be a for-profit company. And as a result of that, it's obviously important that our economics work. So in addition to working on the pyrolysis, which is taking that Lego tower and breaking it down, we also on our front end bring film in directly. So that's our primary feedstock is film. And we bring that in because it is the most undervalued post-use plastic. And the majority of that will land in a landfill or in our environment. And that, that's Nexus. Perfect. Tim, do the, can you do the same thing? For, for the father of a 15-year-old son, the Lego analogy does resonate. Tim, tell us about uh, Agilex and the like. Yeah, so Agilex is a company that's been around from its very early inception, nearly 18 years ago, working in this space, initially 
doing something similar to what Jody's talking about, but now focused on really the certain specific technologies within the advanced or chemical recycling space. And you're going to hear those terminologies somewhat interchangeably, depending on which side of the ocean you're on. So we now are basically focused on what are the key elements that are required to make the circular economy real, make it happen at scale. And in order to do that, you need to address four key things. You need to be able to source plastic waste. It may sound easy, but actually that's one of the key limitations today. You then need to be able to process it into a form where it can actually be used in different conversion facilities in order to turn it back into a useful product that can be further purified and brought back to virgin plastic or other products. So those four steps, the first two steps, sourcing and processing, what we've done now within, within Agilex is we've created something called the Cyclix Joint Venture and Consortium. The joint venture is with ExxonMobil. We own 75%, they own 25%. That is really all focused about bringing innovation to the area of how do you make plastic waste available at the right price, at the right quality, and at the right scale for enabling the industry. So it's really focused on the industry and, and the consortium that's around that includes the five largest pieces of plastic in the world. So Exxon, Dow, Lionel, Bacell, Sabic, and, and Ineos, amongst about another 25 on top of that. So that's one aspect of what we bring. The other piece is then conversion technology. So it's built around pyrolysis. And it can do the same kind of conversion of mixed waste plastics of, of polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene, et cetera. But it can also be used to depolymerize, which is really focusing in on specific plastics in order to provide a direct, what we sometimes refer to as molecular recycling of product. All of that, though, is about enabling others. So we are an asset-like company. We bring technology, we bring know-how, we bring specific equipment to be able to enable others to be able to, to make this happen. And we have technology partnerships with Technique, with Mitsubishi in different pathways, polystyrene and plexiglass. We obviously have a big partnership with Exxon on the feedstock side, as well as with many of those other companies that I, that I mentioned. And we're at a, we have projects in, in Japan, in Korea, we have projects in Europe and North America. And just before Christmas, Exxon and Lyondell announced an investment into the first of our Cyclix-related units, those feedstock-related units, to the tune of about $100 million in the Houston area. And we're working very, very assiduously in Houston as an area where we see huge opportunity to drive recycling rates up dramatically. Just a bit about me. So I'm based normally in Switzerland. I'm actually in London today, but my background is, is basically the chemical industry. So I spent 23 years with ExxonMobil and I spent five years with Trinzio, which was a carve out of the Dow Chemical Company. Jody, take it back a step for me, if you wouldn't mind. Talk a little bit about the differences, both in terms of sort of specialization limitations of mechanical versus chemical. What are some of the things that can only be done through chemical? What are some of the recycling products that only can be done through mechanical? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So a lot of the thought process around recycling 
is based in mechanical because mechanical has been around for such a long time. And today, when we talk about nine or 10% recycling rates, some people do think that they're lower, but let's use nine or 10 for this discussion. It's mechanical. We're firm believers that the first thing that we should be doing is reducing the amount of plastic that we're using, then reusing it. But if you move down, mechanical recycling should be the next place, the next home for post-use plastic. After that, it would go to advanced incineration, hopefully not, but to landfill, and then unfortunately to the environment. And if we look at the differences between mechanical and chemical, mechanical is very well suited for things that are rigid. So if you think about PET, or if you think about high density polyethylene, if you think about a detergent bottle or a water bottle, they're very well suited for mechanical recycling. That's about of the plastic that is available. That's probably about 22% of the plastic that's available. There's another 60% of plastic that's available that's really better for chemical recycling. And that would be low density polyethylene. So your grocery bags, your garbage bags, things that are film based really do very, very well in the chemical recycling. Polystyrene is another one that does very well in the chemical recycling and polypropylene. So that's some of the differences. The the mechanical process doesn't change the product chemically. So we don't go from that long Lego tower down to the monomers. It can be used sometimes between one and three times. The chemical can be done over and over and over again. The mechanically recycled plastic still carries all of those impurities with it. So it can only be used in certain applications, whereas the chemical recycled product, because it really acts like virgin product, can be used in any application. So there are some significant differences between those two. There's also a difference, if I may add, in what you ideally want if you're doing advanced recycling as a feedstock. So for example, if you have calcium carbonate, which is sometimes used as a filler in plastic, unfortunately, when you go into an advanced recycling facility, that gets carried through to the finished product. And when we sell that to our customers, they don't want that calcium. They have a catalyst in their crackers and in their refineries, and the calcium will react negatively to that catalyst. So when you formulate for advanced recycling, you should be thinking about it differently than if you're formulating for mechanical. We're lucky because the two types of plastics generally have different first life. So it's easy to think about the formulation differently. Got it. So Tim, when you, the chemical processes, I'm just, from what Jody just said, it implies that they're when thinking about this as mechanical, 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 and chemical is not really, there's not two processes there. There's probably safe to say dozens of mechanical processes, dozens of chemical processes, right? Talk, talk a little bit about the levels of complexity amongst the chemistry, uh, amongst the different chemistries and the chemical processes. And is there issues of uh, are there large-scale cost differentials, all these sorts of things? When you th- sit down and think about the chemical process, right? Obviously, it's much broader than just that that one sort of, it's not an all-encompassing term. Yeah, absolutely. And within the chemical process, you need to think beyond into what you're putting your finished product, the resultant product from the chemical recycling, what you're putting it into. Jody just mentioned that, you know, that there are certain downstream units that are going to have limitations. 
And so if you don't understand that and you haven't translated that back through all the way through to your sourcing, then first of all, you can create major problems for downstream units, which tend to be eye-wateringly expensive. But the other thing is that that if you if you haven't managed that entire process, you end up being focused on a very narrow range of of eventual waste or feedstock, which can actually become very limiting and in the end very expensive. Because typically, the cleaner it is, the more simple it is, the more it's applicable to pretty much everybody in this space. And so, as the the industry develops, that material will become more of a premium. And the ability to be able to take more distressed waste will actually create a competitive advantage if you have the conversion capability that can deal with it. Let me give you an example. So polystyrene we just talked about is a, is a product that can be either used in chemical recycling with other products to take it back to a sort of synthetic crude and then rebuild it through the chemical units, or it can be sort of unzipped to its direct monomer, styrene, and that can be purified directly. But if you look at different forms of polystyrene that are out there, a very clean form of it might be the expanded polystyrene around a television, for example. You buy your television in Best Buy, it's got that around it. Pretty clean, there's not a lot of impurities in it. Lots of people would be very interested in that material. And it could potentially be quite expensive if the, as the industry develops. By contrast, if you've got the right technology, both in purification, conversion and purification, you can start going after material that others can't touch, such as flame retardant laden foams coming out of insulation boards out of houses. Those have to have compounds in them, fluorinated compounds in them that make them completely unusable for any other type of recycling. So if you've got the technology, which is what we have with technique called true styrenics, you can take that material and turn it back into a pure monomer that could be sold into any application for styrene, which by the way, includes Lego bricks. So it is, it is about the end-to-end and understanding, having the degrees of freedom to be able to open up the window. And that is absolutely critical. And the key thing I just wanted to pick up as well on the other thing, which is that with chemical recycling of the different types, you are able to go back to virgin product, which means you can take super distressed waste, depending on what your situation is, but you can take that and you can turn it back into things that can go into food and pharmaceutical grade applications, which is something that can't be done with mechanical. So whilst mechanical is absolutely the first port of call, use those molecules as many times as you can in the mechanical world. Typically, they will slowly get downcycled, and then you absolutely need chemical recycling to be able to bring it back up to the really high-end uses. So, Jody, just talk about the feedstock side of things, because the one thing I'm sort of trying to work out here is... Everyone wants to, everyone wants the polystyrene on that's surrounding my new TV that I'm going to buy, right? Everyone wants. It sounds like everyone wants that stuff because it's easy, right? So, Tim implied, forgive me, Tim, I forgot this wrong. That that the price of that polystyrene as an as a feedstock is actually going to be more expensive for you because it is easier to to process. But is the other side of the argument that there should be a premium that you should get a premium? for your end product 
based on how difficult it is to, to from the feedstock you have. So you and I, when we were chatting on chatting on, on Friday, talked about peanut peanut butter jars and how it's impossible to get a peanut butter jar clean, right? Is that when you think about the when you when you think about the end products that you're producing for second and third life, right? Are you getting a premium on that product for stuff that's hard to do, or is it one universal pricing, which implies there's just going to be a scramble for the for the polystyrene around my television? That's a great question. I don't think that we get a premium because of the difficulty in cleaning the peanut butter jar. As an example, I do think that that's something that we should talk about because the collection and the sorting and the cleaning and getting products ready to be recycled, either the mechanically recycled or chemically advanced recycled, is an important part of the, the discussion. But that being said, the, the consumer good companies are asking and depending where you are in the world, the governments are regulating that you need to have more post-use product in your final formulation. And as a result today, because of supply and demand, and there is a huge demand for these types of products, the products that we're producing, there, there is a premium for them compared to a typical virgin product. It's a little bit different on the mechanical side when you formulate with a mechanically recycled product. And let's say that you're putting it through a, a blow mold and you're making containers you actually, in order to use that product, because it still has all those contaminants in it, right? We put an additive in so that we could squeeze our ketchup container. Well, when we use that plastic a second time, that's a contaminant. And because we're now, we haven't taken them out when we mechanically recycled, they're going back into the stream and they're making it hard to make that ketchup container again. And what if I want a detergent container and I don't want it to be squeezable? As a result, when people are using mechanically recycled plastic, they have to derate their capacity of their plants, sometimes by as much as 20 to 40%. It runs much slower and that increased their cost. So on the mechanical, it's a little bit different. With our products, because they act just like Virgin, they can and the customers that we sell to can certify that they have recycled content in their products. There is today a premium for these types of products in the marketplace. But as you and I discussed earlier, our belief is that we have to be able to do good and do well, and investors expect a return on their investment. So for Nexus, we set up the business to be able to be the, the low-cost producer of products and make sure that we are always being mindful of the fact that the alternative that someone could use is a fossil-based product. Right. So, but just to take that point a step further, I mean, we focus a lot here on, on, on smart policy, right? So, for example, there is a, an arms race in battery in battery recycling. And the one common theme amongst every battery startup out there is there's no feedstock of batteries for them to recycle, right? Because the 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 the, the, the first 10-year-old Tesla is just coming off the is just being driven around pretty much now. Right, there's not a lot of recycled car batteries, for example, which is where a lot of these are set up. Um, recycling in the aggregate is one area where there's heavy, where there's heavy regulation, particularly in the in the in the EU context, right? And it would it just seems that makes would make sense to me that there would be sort of stronger government regulation around incentivizing companies like like Nexus and Agilux to recycle products that are actually difficult to recycle. Are we seeing that anywhere in policy, either 
Jody, first in the US context, and then Tim, I'll ask you about the about the the EU. We're hearing conversations about it, and there is a bit. So if you go to certain states like California, which tends to be a bit more progressive with these sorts of things, they are putting regulations in place. If you look at things like garbage bags, they need to be have 20% post-use plastic in them. A bit of a challenge, though, is that today, if you want to do that, because the advanced recycling industry still has relatively low volumes, that's a mechanically recycled demand. And mechanically recycled plastic doesn't work well in film. So the the interesting thing about it is the way that you make a grocery bag that has 20% recycled product is you use mechanical. And to make that work, you make a thicker bag. So you actually still use the same amount of virgin plastic that you used to, and in some cases more, so that you can have a 20% recycled content in there. So in the US, we're definitely behind, so I'm looking forward to to Tim's response on this because Europe is way more ahead on some of the, the government assistance in this area. But we also have to be thoughtful when we put these regulations in place. If you say you want 20% recycled content, but the only way to do that is actually to increase the amount of virgin plastic, you haven't actually addressed the underlying problem. Well, that's right. But but actually, let's be clear, the area where we most focus on feedstock is the US. So the cyclics business is predominantly focused in the US right now. And people ask, well, why is that? And and I think what's interesting is, and, and I'll just say it as I see it, because the US is much more innovation friendly. You can innovate. They're also very bluntly because the US, I think, recognizes that it's got a lot further to go. And so when you've got, you recognize you've got a problem, that you need a solution, and you are more innovation friendly, you are open to creating more opportunity to to, to do this. Because let's be really clear about it. And I will defend this to the hilt. The existing waste industry is not going to solve this problem. If anybody thinks that they're going to get all of this plastic waste in a suitable form to be converted from the existing waste industry, they will be sorely disappointed. And if you want a proof point for that, the reason why ExxonMobil invested in Cyclex is because they did exactly that. They went to the existing waste industry and said, can you help us? We have a technology to convert product. We don't know how to get the feedstock to feed it. And they went to all of the usual players and basically said, it's not going to work. So they came to Agilex. They understood our technology and our capability in that, that space. And that is the start of, I was about to say the nexus of of of, of cyclics. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, sorry, yeah, I'll give that. that but it was the, uh, the you, because you realise that actually you've got to design something new. You've got to innovate for something new to be able to get hold of the material. Because whether you're at nine percent in the US or you're arguably maybe in the mid-teens in Europe, some countries say they're higher than that. But when you really pass the power, you really dig into the numbers. That's kind of where you are. You are a million miles from addressing the issue of 400 million tons of waste being produced every year and actually being able to capture that above ground hydrocarbon and actually reutilize it. So innovation is needed everywhere. I actually think that regulation can help and should help and should come in. 
the danger with regulation is that it becomes something that actually constrains innovation as opposed to encouraging it. And there is some evidence of that in some places where we get people get so fixated on certain things that, for example, pyrolysis gets conflated with incineration. It's not incineration. It's absolutely not. It's got nothing to do with it. There is a big thing missing in pyrolysis that would make it incineration, and that's called oxygen. Things like that where you can end up with, with, with regulation actually constraining development. This worldwide problem that we've got is something that we need to throw everything at, every innovation at. We should be celebrating all the companies like Nexus and others, plus the big companies that are putting money into this, because this is such a huge issue that we have to address. And eventually, I think I saw a question in here somewhere that said something about costs coming down. Yeah, eventually this will commoditize. I'm a commodity chemical guy. It will commoditize, and then it will become all about access to the cheapest feedstock, who can run it, who can touch it the least times possible to actually convert it into something useful. We're a long, long way from that today. I mean, many, many millions of tons away from it today. Got it. Well, Tim, let's continue with this this feedstock theme, right? Because again, one of the things that I have a bias, a negative bias towards the eventual success of the circular economy is, is transportation, right? Because again, I can't see how if when when Nexus becomes the the booming public company that it is, and you and you and you take your growth even further, how you you're not going to have or your relationship with the Silex side of things, ExxonMobil is not going to have one big plant in the middle of the United States getting train loads of, of feedstock coming in from all over the country because that's not economically viable. You're going to have to have dozens of plants around the country taking in feedstock because whether it's corn for corn stocks for or corn for for ethanol or or other feedstocks for biochar and stuff the rule of thumb is if it travels more than 100 miles it's not going to be profitable right so but talk a little bit about how actually just dive in a little bit into the silex relationship with with exxon and how that actually and how you actually get your feedstock well so i'm just going to address that point that you've raised there because there's i'm going to use a new term uh, and you can use this term interchangeably with waste. What you need to think about is waste or raw stock. This is the material that is 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 being produced, being thrown away, coming out of all kinds of different places. And I'll talk about some of that in a moment. That material in general doesn't meet anybody's specification for conversion. Um, you might get small amounts of it, small streams of it. You might get lucky and get it cheap for a while, but when you start thinking about millions of tons, it simply doesn't exist at the millions of tons scale in the right quality, in the right quantity at the right price. And if you think about post-consumer material, it clearly doesn't, because then you're talking about an unbelievable mixed bag of, of, of junk. But sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is, sorry to interrupt. Does that imply though that the that the scalability has to come from the industrial side? No, no, it doesn't. So, but what I'm drawing the distinction of is if I'm moving that raw stock a long distance, I completely agree with you that it cannot be moved. It has to be processed within a reasonable distance. But when you look at what we're what we're working on in cyclics with the cyclic circularity center, the output of that is a compounded material 
specifically designed for the anchor chemical advanced recyclers of that particular unit, that material can be moved. That material is densified enough to be to, to be moved a much further distance. So it isn't as straightforward as to say waste can't move. Waste can be moved, but at different points. And once it's become a feedstock, a suitable feedstock, then if it's been done correctly, then it then it, there is opportunity to move. So it's it's not quite so straightforward as to say this stuff can't move and it can't be economic. I would disagree with that because it, it depends in part upon the access to the raw stock and what you're doing with it. In terms of how we access that that raw stock, I mean, the first thing to think of is that if you look at normal sort of existing waste facilities, they're probably touching 10, maybe on a good day, 15% of the total plastic that's available. So unless you're going outside of that, and radically rethinking how do you get hold of that material? And then on the basis of chemical characterization of that waste, how can I use the different sources as recipe elements within an overall recipe to be provided as feedstock to somebody like Exxon? Then you're going to have a problem with availability. And if you have a problem with availability, then over time you'll have a problem with price. So what we're doing is we're building partnerships through our consortium into um, different ways of accessing that waste, different types of take-back programs at the industrial level, at the commercial level, and at the consumer level, so that we can develop recipes for the likes of Exxon and Lyondell that can meet their requirements, which could also be to say, I need 30% post-consumer. Well, let me tell you, if somebody says they need X percent post-consumer, they're going to need a lot more processing because you're dealing with a very, very different beast than from, for example, the program that was just launched by Cyclix with Tenkate grass, which is artificial turf, where you're going to get a certain level of contamination in that, but actually a very consistent product that can be used as a recipe component. So it's about a multitude of different approaches towards sourcing we then do chemical characterization and analysis of how you can use that in light of what the downstream customer wants. And then we're putting in place these large scale parity centers to be able to take more cost out, be super efficient. As I say, the, 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 one, the one that we're building in Houston started off at about 40,000 tons. We're now talking about 150,000 tons or more. And, and that's where you start getting real efficiencies of scale with being able to access material and, and, and drive the overall process. Jody, look at this from your, from your perspective. I get the sense that the companies that succeed in, the, in this space, or well, let me word it slightly different, the success of Nexus and Agilux going forward is as much about these, these large-scale sourcing relationships to ensure the feedstock as it is the chemistries and the, and the processes that you're using to process these materials, right? Talk a little bit about how you're scaling your feedstock access and what you think about that notion that success is going to be driven by access to feedstock. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. And I think a lot of the things that Kim was saying are right right down the same alley that that we believe too. So if you think about continuum of either industrial or pre-consumer versus post-consumer, you move from something that's really very homogenous and tends to be clean when it's coming off of an industrial line 
all the way through to it's gone through your house's recycling system or lack, depending on your household, and then going to your your local MRF. And this is obviously very heterogeneous and very, very mixed and often very contaminated to the point where it can't be recycled. If you also think about the fact that that the recycling technology in, in the U.S., but really globally, the, the machines were set up not to handle things like film. So if you think about initially, they were set up to handle cardboard and paper because that was what was valuable. So if you go into a MRF, which I don't recommend going into in the summer, that was the first time I visited one. Not a great time to go to a MRF in the heat. But anyway. I could use this just a MRF is... Oh, sorry. Municipal recycling facility. So where when you put your things into the blue bin or you put your things out for trash or even in some collections from offices and others, it'll go into a recycling facility. So the first thing and that will have everything from cardboard to aluminum cans to different types of plastic. Most of those facilities don't want film. And the reason they don't want film is the first thing they do is they put all of that waste onto a conveyor belt and they blow air on it. And when they blow air on it, they're trying to get the paper and the cardboard off because that has value. So they blow air on it. Well, if you have film in that stream, plastic film, it gets blown off and now you've contaminated your paper and your cardboard stream. So the reason that they've said, no, 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 don't put your plastic in with everything else is because now you've contaminated something that I believe my business needs for value, which is the paper and the cardboard. So the facilities are not set up to handle it. So for Nexus, what we said is because that is going into landfill, we're going to set up a facility so that we can bring in that plastic and we can handle it directly. So we don't have it densified. We don't have it pre-sorted. We don't have it it pelletized. And we did develop film handling capabilities, which was new for the industry in the space. So we will bring, we can handle rigids. There's no problem doing that. And we will put those in. We can also handle foams, whether it's polypropylene foams or polystyrene foams, we can handle that as well. But if you look in our warehouse, it's 80% film that, that we bring in. We also agree with you with the distance. So when we set up new facilities, we do a study to make sure that there's enough plastic available at the right quality, the right the right specifications for our facility within a 150 mile radius of our plants. So our strategy is not to build mega plants, but to look at the demographics of the area and the sourcing of the plastic so that we can keep that pretty tight knit Fortunately or unfortunately, our customers are oftentimes located close to those centers as well. So if you think of any big city, whether it's Philadelphia or Houston or others, there's plenty of plastic. They also tend to be near the customer's assets. Got it. And I assume that's obviously that's the competitive landscape near these major centers, whether it's to try to access feedstocks because it is closer to the sources themselves, isn't it? There's a bit of a competitive, again, there are companies now that are setting up the ability to handle films, but it is still fairly limited to be able to to handle those. And if you look at the amount of film that's available, it's still the most prevalent form of plastic that's ending up in the post-use streams. 
Got it. And so, how important are companies like AMP Robotics and these sort of, these these sort of automotive? Because again, the the problem that the it's, it's the MRF, I think you call it the MRF, the Municipal Recycling Facility that, that they have is that, and particularly in the in the COVID area era, right? Really hard to get staff to 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 work in these in these locations, right? So the automation around around this side of things, I think, is is going to be huge. And we've interviewed AMP Robotics and there's numerous companies or several companies like that. How important is the automation of the separation process in terms of making the circular side of things efficient? I get that's more upstream for you. How important is that in terms of the process itself? It is a very good question. So if you think about the pyrolysis reactors, they can take in things like paper and and other contaminants. But the only thing that converts to the oil that the customers want to purchase is polypropylene, polyethylene, and polystyrene in in our space. And so anything else that's in there is simply going to be a contaminant and it's going to reduce your yields. So when you think about the technology, like the robotic technology, I also agree with what Tim was saying earlier that there's a lot of people that need to be successful in this space for the industry to have made a significant dent in plastics. That being said, when we run our lines in the front end, so the mechanical part of our process, our lines run fast enough that the robotics still are not able to keep up with the rates that we run. So there just needs to be more advances in that technology. So for example, when we are, you're literally thinking of a long table with a belt. So it's conveying. And again, because we use film, so the film will come out onto the line. It will tend to cover up maybe something that's underneath like a can. It's very hard for the robotics, one, to see that there's something underneath and then at the rate that it's moving to remove it. Over time, the technologies are getting much, much, much better. So we believe that there's a place for them and an important place for them in the industry. But just like our technology, we're still at the beginning stages of having those work at scale. Got it. Now, Tim, when we spoke on when we spoke on Monday, you talked about the well, and you mentioned it before in your introductory remarks, the four areas that you're focused on, mm-hmm. which is source processing, converting, and purifying, right? Alex looks at at, at source sourcing and processing. Talk a little bit about the economics of your, well, not necessarily the economics, but the business opportunities around the conversion and purification side of things. Now, can I can I assume the Silex side of things doesn't get involved in that, but Agilex does? Is that is that where is that how that works? So I mean the reality is that this is an end-to-end process. Depending on what you're what you're converting, what you're trying to produce, the more that you create degrees of freedom in that to allow cyclics to go after different, more distressed material, the better the overall economics are. And I mentioned the flame retardant laden polystyrene based foams coming out of building and construction waste. That that stuff has no other home. So if you can take that material because you've got the right conversion and purification process, then you're able to access first of all, a very plentiful supply of waste, and secondly, an extremely distressed from a pricing point of view source of waste. So you've got a basis for long-term competitive advantage. Sorry to interrupt, can I ask a really dumb question? Yeah. Is that, is, let's say there's a, build, there's a building being demolished not far from my place here in Chicago, yeah. right? Yeah. Is the person, is the company, that the engineering firm that is just, that is taking down that building, 
Are you yeah. paying? Are you paying for that insulation, or are they paying you to take that insulation? No, that no. First of all, we, so we don't build, own, and operate units, so we won't oh, do that at all. Right, sure. But our customers would be paying for that material to then be processed by Cyclex to actually be able to use as feedstock. So, but but right now, the person doing that deconstruction work removal work of that material would have to be paying somebody to put it into landfill so it's so there's basically a diversion opportunity here where you can access that material and other such materials if you have the right conversion and purification steps to be able to go after that another good example on the west coast of the us right now we have our exemplar unit which is currently running in polystyrene mode that it it takes in uh, waste polystyrene from the agricultural industry so this is this is sort of flower pots plant plots plant pots low-end polystyrene lots of fillers and colorants in it also soil and fertilizer in it and we can take that material direct into our into our unit without washing so you can you can actually get hold of that material that again has no other home. They get somebody's going to have to pay to throw that away. That can be a negative cost component of your overall recipe of feedstock, which is what we put in. Now you wouldn't want to run the whole unit on that because you'll get terrible yields. Because but as a component to optimize the economic operation of your unit, that is something that you're wanting to do. I want to be able to play. I don't want to be incumbent on one particular source of relatively clean waste. So the conversion and the purification step are also really important in terms of enabling the sourcing and the processing, because I may not have to do as much of those things. And every time that I touch the waste before it goes into my pyrolysis reactor, I'm adding cost. I'm adding greenhouse gas emissions, and I'm making my process less competitive. So you want to minimize that. So in terms of our conversion unit, it's it doesn't use a catalyst. Catalysts are something that typically make chemical reactions more effective, faster, more efficient. And they're absolutely fantastic in the industry that I came from, the chemical industry. They are absolutely problematic in the waste industry, because the chemical industry typically deals with nice, homogeneous, stable feedstocks. I, I open a pipeline and here it comes. I know what I'm getting. It hits the specification. It's all good. And so I can use a catalyst, which tend to be very, very sensitive to contaminants. Waste is not bad. It is variable. It's dirty. It's full of all kinds of things that can, can create problems. So going for a non-catalytic system is actually something that enables you to open up the degrees of freedom in terms of sourcing material. And it's a straight choice. Some people use catalytic systems. They may be more efficient with very clean sort of sources of waste, and that could be a good answer in certain situations. But if you're wanting to position it to be able to go after a broader swathe of material, then you need to go non-catalytic. And then the criticality of the purification or remediation, depending on what products you're putting through, means it just gives you more opportunities to address contaminants of concern, issues for downstream units. If, if you're putting material into a steam cracker, which is a typical unit that 
If you're putting mixed waste plastic in, you're going to get a pyrolysis oil out that will go into a steam cracker. That steam cracker probably cost that company somewhere in the region of, on a good day, one, but potentially up to three billion, three, four billion dollars to build. They're going to be very, very, very careful about what they put in there. And even very small contaminants can do enormous damage to those units. Whereas, and, and if you go to polystyrene, we're basically saying we can go back to pure polystyrene that can go into food and pharmaceutical goods. Well, of course, then it's got to hit a specification that is suitable for that. So you've got to have the right purification to be able to do that. Whatever you're doing, whatever pathway you're doing, whatever waste you're going after, you've got to understand the end-to-end. If you can control the end-to-end, which is what we're offering, you have more degrees of freedom, more capability to compete, and more ability to take costs out for your customers. Got it. Just Now, just to take that a step further, mate, when you talk about an end-to-end solution, obviously, you're an asset-light business at the moment. Does that naturally imply if you're going to grow to a full end-to-end solution that you need to be asset heavy or is being asset heavy competing with your current clients? No, actually, I think it's it's almost the opposite. The One of our beliefs, especially let's take polystyrene, is that you, the people who are primarily going to benefit from pure recycled styrene, which they can use for all kinds of different derivatives of Styrene that goes into automotive applications, medical, pharmaceutical. I always always say if you open your fridge door, everything that's white in your fridge is a styrene-based polymer. It's either polystyrene or it's ABS. One of those two. It depends which part of the world you're in. Most people don't realize that. The people who are making those products are closer to the customer. They are much better able to capture the value of the molecule than if I was to make this stuff and just sell it to them. Because I would only have the the ability to influence the value on that direct molecular sale to that person. Whereas what they're able to do is to position that within their portfolio and get a huge halo effect. And we're seeing that right now. People who have been able to get there have been able to get a halo effect on their existing business. That's one thing. The second thing, so so, so the economics work much better for them than they do for me. The second thing is that we fundamentally believe that actually, if you're talking about a circular economy for plastics, you also need to be thinking about a circular economy for the steel that's already in the ground. You need to be reutilizing as much of that steel as possible to be part of the circular economy. Otherwise, we're kind of fooling ourselves if we've got to replicate the whole thing. It's just not good. That's not going to be the right environmental, GHG, whatever you want to, whatever metric you put on it, that's not going to be the right thing to do. So we do believe that we have to, as far as possible, reutilize and 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 retool the existing industry. But before that gets taken the wrong way, I just want to say that I absolutely think that there is an enormous role for the people who are building, owning, and operating, like what Nexus are doing, to really help drive this overall process. Because if there are not disruptors up there, out there, if there aren't people who are really creating that that sort of impetus for change, then this doesn't work. So actually, we all need to play our part in this. It's not a case of one business model is right and the other business model is wrong. It's actually, I think. This problem is big enough that we need to throw everything at it. 
Got it. Jody. the future of Nexus is, it sounds like there's a range of wet ways you can go. It's mechanical versus chemical. It's catalytic, non-catalytic. I think there's. it sounds like there's a lot of different ways you can go. Where does the business evolve from a process standpoint? We'll put geography to one side. But from a process standpoint, where does the company evolve from here? So, and Tim, Tim mentioned this, there's a lot of different models out there. So for Nexus, we are build, own, and operate. 10 years plus down the road, we'll we'll look at other options, including licensing. I've been doing manufacturing for over 35 years. I stopped counting at 35 because I just decided that was enough. And I just, for me, I don't believe that that the technology is advanced enough to be a, the best licensing model. That being said, so for, for Nexus, we'll continue to put steel in the ground and continue to perfect that. But when we think about the, the business opportunity, we've talked a lot about the front end, the mechanical end, and getting the right feedstocks in and getting that in economically. But the other thing that you have to do is the back end also has to be effective. When we finish with our product, we don't do a post-treatment of our product, and our customers don't do a pre-treatment of our product. It meets their specifications, and we've 100% of the time, it has met the specifications of our customers, and it will continue to do that. So they put it directly into their assets. We thought that was really important, not just from a cost standpoint, because I would agree with the comment that if you have to put in front end treating, it is crazy expensive. And it also does terrible things to your footprint, right? To have to take that extra processing. The other thing that we look at are things like the efficiency of our steel. So we want to have a very high yield, which we which we do. We recycle the, we have a little bit of non-condensable gases. We actually use that as our energy source. So we really use 100% of what we put in going back into this, this finished product. Having that high yield, having very high throughput, having a finished product that can be used directly so it doesn't have to be post-treated are all part of what we believe is important to make this space work and to have the, frankly, the, the high returns that our investors expect from us. The, when I look at the industry going forward, it's really no different than any other manufacturing process. We need to increase those efficiencies. One of the businesses I had a chance to run was 100 years old, and we still expected a 5% increase in efficiency every year from that facility. We're obviously in a much earlier part of the curve here and are looking for significant increases in the manufacturing efficiency over the next 10 to 20 years. Got it. Because we're, we're, you're in the US, we have to ask this question. And the and the IRA has helped you how? It's really just becoming apparent how it will help us and, and help the industry. So I don't have a, a great succinct answer for you at this point, but it is certainly something that we are looking at. And I think others in this space are looking at as well. Got it. Tim, we'll leave the last point to you as we've unfortunately run out of time. Obviously, Silex has been a sort of probably the the big enterprise that you've adopted in the last in the last couple of years. When did you sign the agreement with Exxon? When did this come about? So Cyclist was launched at the beginning of 2021. Got it. What's the next the next step in terms of both Agilix and expanding Silex? You mentioned Silex has gone from initially 40, a 40,000 ton facility to a 150,000 ton facility. Houston is obviously where Silex is focused. What's what's next for them? So just to be clear, no, the facility that's being built went from an, ori- an original design of 40,000 to 150,000 tons. Mm-hmm. That is moving forward. So obviously that is very significant. But when we look at what our customers need, 
one facility is just the beginning. We need many facilities. And so clearly the build out of those is going to be a, a key focus for the Cyclex business and its partners as it, as it drives that process forward. And in parallel to it, increasing the sourcing capability beyond Houston. So when we talk about multiple units, part of that is across the US such that you can address all programs, which becomes very important from this, that sourcing perspective. So very much a, a sort of national rollout, but then also looking internationally in terms of how to leverage that knowledge, that capability, the IP, and of course, the data set. What is absolutely crucial underpinning cyclics is data. The enormous amount of data that we've got on chemical characterization that will just be accelerated dramatically as part of this and understanding how to leverage that into recipe formulation for customers anywhere in the world, actually. On the Angelic side, it's all about rolling out facilities. And so we're very excited about the fact that we launched what we call True Star Enix with Technip. So Technip Energies are the biggest supplier of styrene fossil styrene technology globally, 35% approximately of all styrene technology assets out there in the world, there's something like 35 million tons of that, are actually Technip Energy's technology, 65% in the US. That combination of true styrenics, which combines our conversion capability with their purification capability is just getting going. And what it allows us to do is move beyond the traditional chemical industry and actually focus this on people that consume styrene because they can get a fungible, tradable commodity directly out of that that can go into any application. And there's probably about 15 to 20 times the number of consumers of styrene than there are producers of styrene. So opened up the market, but also in other spaces, in areas around mixed waste plastics. So the type of mixture of polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene, that sort of mixture we talked about earlier, but other discrete polymers. So things like what's called PMMA, polymethyl methacrylate for the chemists out there, or plexiglass, being able to take that back and do the same sort of thing. And we're working on that with Mitsubishi and who are a, a leader in that industry. And we're looking at other pathways as well. Very exciting. The real thing that we're moving for is how do you get waste to a product? We want to go from waste to it directly to a fungible, tradable commodity product that can go after the market directly and not go back through the traditional chemical industry. So this is a big area of focus for us in terms of growth, because we think that if you can skip steps in the value chain, that's one way of actually making sure that you can capture more value. Um, Tim, selfishly, I learned, I learned a lot and I really, really do appreciate your time. These issues are, are super important. And I think getting into the weeds like this is, is something that, well, selfishly, I, I got a lot out of. So Tim and Jody, please come back and do this again soon. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much. We appreciate the time. Thanks, yeah, everyone. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.